This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Now you won't want to miss one minute of the show today because we have something for everyone. From viruses to politics, we'll be venturing through medicine's rainforest of mysteries, slashing down the vines of half-truths and looking for that river of evidence. On safari with us this morning is Cords. Now, Cords was the Professor Director of the Victorian Institute for Forensic Medicine. They're probably just blown your cover, Cords. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was the Director for 25 years, having recently retired. And he's a world-renowned expert in forensic identification, that is, giving names to the deceased when there is uncertainty about who they might be and their cause of death. His work is well known in the Victorian bushfires, the Bali bombings, Iraq, Yugoslavia and more recently in Liberia with the Ebola outbreak. He's just returned from there and he'll be telling us what it's like to be at the centre of that epidemic. Dr Deep Thought has been a psychiatrist with the show for the past mm, 19, years. 19 years. He just spoke into a dead mic. That just shows how you see <laughs> to be in a studio with me. Um, and that's pretty much uh, since uh, we started Radiotherapy. And he really hasn't changed that much since. He still has the remarkable ability to make us take things seriously, even when we'd rather not. This morning he'll be talking about the normalisation of torture following the recent revelations in uh, the US. He'll also be touching on something that will directly affect us all, namely the $5 GP cost increase. Now, if that weren't enough to get you super glued to your speaker, Dr. Doolittle... And EpiPen will be on hand for their boundary reports and with a special little segment on Christmas too because it's coming up. Plus, we'll be catching up in the latest in medical journals all in the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning, Mal. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, you know, you know, what's your name? Do little. You just, you just cannot keep your fingers away from the keyboard. Um, Sticky um, fingers is what you I'm, know what I'm doing. Um, we haven't put up an announcement on Facebook what we're talking about, so I'm doing it as we speak. <laughs> I'm chatting. I'm um, you know typing away. So if you're on Facebook, like our page. It's called Radiotherapy on Triple R. Cool stuff. And Deep Thought, good day. Just thinking, 19 years and I still can't recognise when the microphone's live <laughs> or dead. It just shows how much preparation I actually put into yeah, this show. You see, I took the blame for that one. And uh, Cords, great to have you on our show. Thanks so much. Well, good to be here, Malpractice. And uh, look, chip in at any time, lady and gents. I have got some of the most interesting um, bit of research. Well, it's not really research. It's editorial from the British Medical Journal, that august journal that uh, everybody would love to publish in. <laughs> It's about uh, music in the operating theatre. Now, hands up, because this is radio, who's been in an operating theatre when there's been music on? Yep, that's all five of us have stuck up their hands. Those of us who uh, have had the pleasure of being in an operating theatre know that surgeons like to play music. They like to play bad music, yeah. generally. Well, that's interesting you should say that, uh, DP. Uh, this editorial by... A whole lot of people um, in the BMJ Christmas edition talks about this particular issue. Now, it was 100 years ago today, they say, that a Pennsylvania surgeon, Evan Kane, wrote a letter to uh, JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, in which he said that uh, playing music in an operating theatre has its benefits. Now, if you know this trivia, I'll be bowled over. This guy, Evan Kane, was also famous for something else as a surgeon. He removed his own appendix in 1920. Oh, wow. oh, called an geez. auto appendix. They post about the smallest things these days. <laughs> was he in the Antarctic or something yeah. at the time? No, I just think he had nothing to do and thought, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I once cut my own hair. Is that the equivalent? <laughs> and that coincided with the invention of death metal. Well, that's very interesting you should say that. No, no, and he said that it not only calmed himself as a surgeon, but it calmed himself as a patient. And there has... There has there have been studies looking at this. There was a randomised trial of 372 patients having elective surgery, and those patients were played relaxing melodies, that is, melodies with a beat between 60 to 80 beats per minute, unlike, uh, you know, when you go to aerobics, it's like 120. And uh, this sort of music proved superior, superior to midazolam uh, as a pre-anesthetic anxiolytic, that is something that decreases your anxiety. How about that? Music calms you down, and there's a study to prove it. Um, Also uh, in this editorial is a review of the number of surgeons who like to play music. 
60, was it 62 to 72 percent of the time music is played in theatre? You know, it's an interesting one because we've got in Melbourne a doctor called um, Catherine Crock at the Children's, and she's developed music all over um, the country and it's played all over the world now. She has a website called Hush Music yeah. that for, um, she started it at the Children's for kids having procedures and they play it pre op primarily, but it's sort of spread everywhere. They now have it in waiting rooms and the music's all designed specifically for what's going on. So they get Australian music um, composers to write music and they give them basically a brief and I haven't seen the brief but it you know it says things like you know avoid um, <laughs> avoid minor chords that are particularly um, anxiety provoking yeah. at particular times and yeah. that sort of stuff and they have a, they've got something like 14 CDs and they put out concerts it's a similar thing except of course in theatre the patient's well, they're asleep for most of the time, but at the start, they're awake, obviously. Yep. Hey, you're a musician, aren't you? Well, you're a drummer. A, a drummer? Musician, musician. We call ourselves musicians. No, no, no one else does. No, he's not a drummer, yeah, he's a musician. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, tell us, you know, there are certain, you're also a bass player, there are certain chords that evoke particular emotions. Like, I know a D minor is, is it makes you feel sad. Well, in, I mean, there's a, yeah. It depends how people put it together, but, you know, the most broad definitions yeah. of the major chords are tend to be used in uplifting songs and the minor ones and sad ones, and, you know, so yeah. basic, de- you know, differences like that. Okay, and just to add to that, um, Paul Grabowski, um, who had a sick child at the Children's Hospital, he's released a CD um, that's all about jazz and soft music and for kids to listen to when they're having chemo and all sorts of... That's through Hush, I bet, because Paul Grabowski is the main person who works with Cathy Crock to do it all. Right. See what you learn on this show? <laughs> you just identified another similarity between operating theatres and, I dare to say, mortuaries. Uh, you guys music play music? Is a prominent feature of um, this sort of atmosphere to calm, to help staff yeah. concentrate and apply themselves to the difficult work in the mortuary. Do the, do the patients ever wake up and say, please change well, the CD? No, this never happened? Hasn't happened yet. Right. I can see an editorial, an editorial coming up in the BMJ. So I, was just I was actually going to ask you that, whether people did uh, play music during uh, post-mortems, but what sort of music do you play? Well... What's helpful for staff? I think, you know, I find myself sometimes asking people to turn it down Mm. and to sometimes change the nature of the music. There's a little bit of a sort of an issue about the type of music and the overall environment that um, uh, should be uh, in the mortuary. Respectful type of thing, yeah? Mm. Yeah. Well... I'll get to the type of music that shouldn't shouldn't be played that uh, this article talks about. But who do you think is most critical, or who, who predominates amongst what, what particular group is most critical of music in the operating theatre? Well, the main groups in there, obviously, the nurses, the anaesthetists, and the surgeons, and then all of the people who bring patients in and out, the orderlies. Nice. I like your thinking. First principles. Who do you think is most critical? Anaesthetists. Correct. <laughs> um, critics among uh, whom anaesthetic staff predominate. Don't you just love the English? It's fantastic. Most commonly argue that music consumes cognitive bandwidth. So listening to music kind of distracts you a bit. Yet surgeons would argue, no, it helps uh, us focus. So there's a bit of argument here. So I reckon that's a great study to do. You know, does it actually improve your skills? It, it may c- consume bandwidth, but we've got to think about what the bandwidth is used for. And, and there's a lot of evidence. In fact, the music therapist we had on a few weeks ago um, was talking about the integrative function of music, how it integrates right and left brain. And Integra- brain integration rather than disintegration is always helpful. That's so good having you on this show. Who so yes, it may consume bandwidth, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, who studies with music on versus oh, not? Thank you, thank yeah. you, students. Um, yeah. uh, my son listens to music all the time while he's studying. And I can't cope with that because yeah. I have to concentrate. But he says all his friends do, and he changes the tone and the different genre of music. But they block it out, don't they? Because I always studied with music too, yeah. all the television, and I could have had a whole show or you know a whole CD play, and I wouldn't have noticed it once yeah. if I'm studying. And then when when you've got a sort of a block in your study or a break, that's when you listen to it, even though it's playing the whole time. I learned anatomy to Pink Floyd, and now when I listen to comfortably, <laughs> I can still go through those mnemonics in my head. You know, well, there's a good one for the anaesthetists: comfortably numb. Ah, ta-da! So. Well, see, I don't think you block the music out. I think that the integrative benefits of music is still happening, but you're just you're not cognitively focused on the music. Is it company? What is it about music while you're studying? Well, you see, that's a very good psychological question. 
I don't know the answer to that. But um, let me go. Let me go through this list of songs that the authors talked about um, for, uh, I guess, so- suggestions to play in an operating theatre and suggestions for songs to avoid in an operating theatre. Can you think of some suggestions of songs that uh, you think surgeons might want to play in an operating theatre? Uh, money. <laughs> <laughs> Jazz. As a genre. <laughs> I, can, I, I, I haven't got... I'm still, though, when I was a junior doctor and had to do surgery, there was a surgeon at the time who just played the music from Cats. Over oh, and no. over and over and, and, until, you know, I really want to, wanted to be anaesthetised myself. I just couldn't bear it any longer. Well, songs for surgery. Here we go. Suggestions for surgery. Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Um, but they say, a great suggestion for the patient, but the operating team members should resist the urge to emulate John Travolta's expansive dance routine. Uh, Smooth Operator by Sade. Uh, Unbreak My Heart. Um, for cardiac surgery, Comfortably Numb for Pink Floyd, Fix You by Coldplay, and uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go by Wham 1984. Best played in recovery. Handover to recovery staff should take no longer than the duration of the song. Exit from the recovery should be backwards, crouched, and with finger clicking, is what the authors say here. And this doesn't sound like a serious article. It's a serious paper. No, it's a serious paper. It's, <laughs> it sounds like it's, it's descended into d- David, nonsense. David C. Bosaquin. But how do I pronounce that? Bosanquet? Yeah, Bosanquet. James Glasby and Rafael Chavez. Chavez. That's from the Christmas edition. They're always semi joke. Yeah, I said that. Did you listen to our show? What if you wanted to keep beat while you're cutting? And they give some songs not to play. Another one. Let me guess. Another one bites the dust. Well done. Everybody hurts. Knives out. Scar Tissue by the Red Hot Chili Peppers and House of Pain. Interesting stuff. Who would have thought that, that, that these, are, these, these guys are pretty august? This guy's the consultant general and transplant surgeon at the Department of Surgery University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff. How's the way, though, on a political note, it's yeah. just a given in the article that the surgeon thinks that the surgeon should choose the music. Why Thank should you. they? Why, should, why shouldn't yeah. it just be democratic? Why should the surgeon get choice of music? Everyone has to concentrate. Everyone has to be focused. And that used to annoy me in the theatres in the old days too, that sense that the surgeon, just because they're the one holding the knife, the gets to make all the decisions. I don't buy it. It's yeah. all about them. <laughs> that is an excellent idea for a randomised controlled study, uh, Dr Doolittle. We are going to come back with Cords, who is going to be telling us about... Uh, his time in Liberia just a couple of weeks ago, really, and what it's like to be the centre of the Ebola epidemic. Three, triple, ah. You are listening to Dr. Doolittle, uh, EpiPen, Dr. Malpractice, that's me, Dr. Deep Thought, and Cords, our special guest, uh, and we could spend probably a whole day on the radio talking with Cords. Cords, tell us a little bit about yourself and your history and, and how you come to be where you are professionally. Oh, well, um, that, uh, that'll that take a little while. To, uh, <laughs> so, As I was saying, uh, I thought, no, stupid no, question. For some no. reason, um, Malpractice, I always wanted to be a forensic doctor um, and uh, I'd need to uh, defer to Blocky here to, uh, uh, to, to work out uh, to why but um, uh, so I'm, I was in a very happy spot was able to get a uh, job in forensics in London at Guy's Hospital and uh, then this dream position opened up in uh, Melbourne which, um, uh, which I came back for in 1987 to um, get going with the New then Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. So it's been. Uh, I'm a pathologist. I get involved with investigating deaths that are reported to the coroner. Um, so um, most people think that means you spend all day with the dead. Of course, you're spending all day with the living, yeah. <coughs> dealing with the dead. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's been, you know, a great job. So. I mean, you did speak about. It, is, it had been a, almost a vocation. You, you thought this is what you'd always wanted to do. If, if we were to go back and look at you as a young kid or as a teenager, is there any telling evidence or incidents which would point us in the direction of what you might do as a profession? Uh, well, the old man was a GP. Yeah. So if, I, if this hadn't worked out, I would have been very happy being a uh, general practitioner. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, no, I don't. It's a bit difficult to work out how this sort of happened. I think 
as a student, I found out that I wasn't a very good clinician. Huh. And uh, so I needed to find a space in medicine where the patients uh, couldn't, couldn't die. <laughs> didn't have to talk to anyone. Uh, disadvantaged by my presence. Uh. And it's better than medical administration. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been a bit of administration in my uh, in my job too. So oh. um, I think patients are very well off with me in uh, in pathology. Right. Okay. Now you've, you've obviously travelled a lot and worked for a lot of um, uh, worked in a lot of different situations. How how did you come to be involved internationally with with all these, uh, I guess, disasters and, and identifying uh, the dead? Yeah, well, um, that sort of serendipity uh, as well in that um, uh, in the late nineties and um, early two thousand, the forensic community was around the world was getting more involved in things like Yugoslavia. Um, people seemed to start to understand that forensics could make a contribution to understanding all of the awful things that were going on in war. Mm. The International Criminal Tribunal was getting going, needed evidence. Part of that evidence is forensic evidence, so you've got to get forensic people involved in the scenes of massacres and crimes uh, that happen during war. So not just in Australia, but uh, my colleagues around the world have all sort of up the up their game in the uh, international space. Which one do you think, well, for you particularly, is is, is most um, most evocative emotionally, or most difficult to handle in all the sort of places you've been? Well, uh, you know, I don't sort of think of it that way. I suppose okay. I think of it more generically, which is you know the people who, the families who um, have their family members go missing. Yeah. Never know what's happened to them. And then years later, dead bodies are found over there. Yeah. Some of them might belong to here. <coughs> and somebody's got to do something to try and make put that together again. Just wondering, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with death, decay, mutilation. How, how do you manage the psychological trauma and stress in, in your, yourself and your staff? Yeah, well, um, I see some pretty horrific things. Yeah, and, and it's a really important question that people like myself have got to be um, asking ourselves from time to time. But for me, the answer to that is um, you actually believe in the value of what you're doing. And um, if you actually believe that it's important to be able to identify those dead people over there in a mass grave so that some at least might find their way back to families who as far as they are concerned don't even at this point know they're dead, they're just missing uh, they find out some facts about what happened and they perhaps get the remains back so that they can bury them, that is actually a valuable thing for that um, family if you didn't think that was valuable it would be a bad thing to get involved with it might be valuable but it's still pretty stressful Yes, you, know, you well, see children, bits of children. Mm. Yes, well, it, it is, um, but it's also a problem that uh, needs to be solved and that mm. perhaps a distraction away from the, uh, from the stress. Now, uh, obviously there's a lot of science that's involved in this and uh, I, I wonder if you could just take us with broad brushstrokes how you go about identifying somebody in front of you who can't tell you their name, obviously. No. Uh, How do you do that? Well, you actually need quite a lot of system uh, to help. So, for example, you need to have a list of names of people who are missing. You need to have some information about those people who are missing. Like? Like, well, when they were last seen, what clothing were they Mm -hmm. wearing? You know, have they got teeth? Have they got false teeth? Have they got scars? Have they got tattoos? Mm -hmm. Um, How tall are they? What colour is their hair? Is it curly or straight? Um... Uh, so lots of things like that. Are they missing a finger? Mm-hmm. Um, and even that type of information can lead you of its own to a very, very solid identification. But then there's the added layer these days of um, DNA. Uh, and in the, in the former Yugoslavia, there's a huge system of um, obtaining... Uh, samples from families with missing members and taking years to do it but it being done 
uh, matching that up with DNA retrieved from you know the tens of thousands of remains that are unidentified. So how does that work? Is there like a DNA bank? You get DNA from a from a, a body and you you match it against that bank. Is that basically what? Well, you match it against samples from um, from the family, uh, and then that usually also means that you dovetail some of this other thing that the anthropological data from the remains is of the approximate age. There's some shreds of clothing left that match with other information. Yeah. There's perhaps um, uh, uh, other sort of anatomical features that enable you to also match it up. So the, the DNA is a set of numbers. Family is not necessarily turned on by a set of numbers, but yeah. if they see a ring that they recognise or a shred of clothing that they recognise, it, it really locks it in. Mm. So tell us, how did you come to be in Liberia recently? Oh, well, I think everybody... Everybody knows that um, a big part of the epidemic in Ebola is actually the handling of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, patients die from Ebola with the maximum viral load, that is when they are sickest. Um, and at that point, how the body is handled, literally handled, mm-hmm. um, can lead to the transmission of the disease. So very difficult for people in countries like Australia to understand what's going on in Liberia and Sierra Leone, but we're in a room here, which is what, it might be four metres by four metres, perhaps three metres by three. Uh, This would house a dozen people. Um, It would be corrugated iron walls with holes in it. Uh, There'd be buckets for toilets. There's nothing and there'd be, of the 12 people, there'd be two adults um, and the male would be earning $2 a day. The focus of the whole thing is on existence. Mm. Um, So there is no spare room to be listening to messages from the government or there's no empathy for what the government might be trying to say. People don't like the authorities, they're just emerging from... um, uh, they're just emerging from terrible war for 30 years. Uh, that war sort of stopped, you know, about 10 years ago. Um, so the place has really got no resources for responding to anything. It's a country of 4 million, Liberia. Um, one and a half people get, one and a half million every year get malaria. One and a half million? One and a half million Jeez. every year wow. get malaria. Yeah. Um, so... Anyway, back to your question. The, yeah. <laughs> the uh, handling a dead, the person dies in this room. Um, the family clearly grieving and upset. They 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 bathe the body. They dress the body. They're very close to the body. All of the fluid to contain the Ebola virus. If you've got a scratch or a sore, or you wipe your hand on on your eyes or your mouth, and you've got a sore there. Um, you're at very serious risk of um, getting a bowl of yourself. Now, something that you just said before was, so the person who who dies from a bowler is in that room. They're not in hospital <coughs> all the time. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there are a couple of hospitals in, um, uh, in Monrovia, and there are more now treatment centres for people with um, Ebola, but... Um, uh, I mean, most people wouldn't think that the hospital is really available for them. Really? How would they get there? Um, You know, you can't really ring an ambulance. There's no ambulance service. There is an ambulance service for Ebola, but it might take two or three days to get to you. And, in fact, early in the epidemic, when hospitals were completely overrun, people were being turned away from hospitals, weren't they, and sent home? Uh, I mean, uh, I think um, the hospitals were and are heroic. There's no um, staff in those hospitals, uh, you know, are dying. Uh, There's over 100, certainly a couple of months ago, it was well over 100 healthcare workers um, had died, Uh, and um, uh, mainly, I think, because they're dealing with patients that they didn't know had Ebola, that they haven't got equipment for gloves or aprons, let alone masks and... Um, all of the full uh, personal protective equipment that uh, everybody uses. So when we call it a hospital, we're not talking about something like the Alfred here that people like imagine. It's really a building just with a sign out the front. 
called hospital, but not much different from any other building in terms of More like equipment. More like warehouses. Yeah, yeah. So not really able to provide good quality medical care. Not because people aren't mm. willing and people aren't dedicated, but because they don't have the infrastructure and the equipment to okay. provide that care. What surprises me, Cords, is that Ebola isn't more rampant in those sorts of conditions. I mean, I would have thought, you know, you've got a person with Ebola in a room of 12, those 12 people would then get Ebola. How yeah. does that not happen? Yeah. Well, that's where you start to get to, you know, really understanding how this virus and epidemic is working. I think, I think there's still a lot that people don't understand that doctors don't understand, that science doesn't yet understand. Um, the predictions from CDC a couple of months ago yeah. were that by now, if there was no further intervention, there'd be 10,000 new cases every week about, and yeah. that's not happening, so it seems. But the numbers uh, in Liberia seem to be going down, but even the WHO is being very cautious about saying that the numbers, in fact are going down because they can't be sure about how the population is reacting, whether the population is taking to their heels and going into the countryside, out of the city, because it doesn't seem to be getting any better in the city, so why would we stay here? Um, So I think there is a bit more water to flow under the bridge, both to understand that, in fact, the numbers are going down, and let's hope they are, and if they are, why? Mm -hmm. And I don't think people have really got a very good answer for that. And when you were there, were there a lot of foreign uh, organisations that had uh, come to Liberia? I mean, were you alone or was it, you know... Well, I was, I was with the um, International Red Cross yeah. and um, uh, yeah, there were lots of other um, agencies there, but as you well know, not enough yeah. <laughs> and not enough people. And uh, so um, that seems to be slowly improving. So, and who coordinates that? I imagine if you've got a whole lot of NGOs coming into a, to a city, I mean, who is it the local government that says, okay, Red Cross, you're doing this, and other organisation, you're doing that? How does that work? Yeah, well, that is, uh, I think, that real challenge for the WHO. They try and uh, coordinate all of this, but of course, the uh, independent other international non government organisations who have got their own brief to um, do what their stakeholders want them to do. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge and very difficult task for WHO, who sort of wear a lot of the uh, apparent responsibility and accountability for this, but actually can't say to, um, as you were shaking your finger at yeah. somebody, as though they'll do what you tell them to do they can't actually say that to people so they've got to work they've got to get people working uh, well together it's a, it's a huge job Cords, um in going there how did that fit in with the australian government's you know going there as an australian how did that fit in with the australian government's initial um idea that they didn't want to send anyone over until we had a safe way to bring them back and and as part of that what were the personal risks you faced Oh, well, there, there, you know, there were plenty of Australians there for different international um, groups, uh, and the, you know, Australians right at the head of the WHO response to this um, uh, epidemic. Yeah, so it's a bit, bit sad to see, you know, sort of our government, as far as I'm concerned, dragging its heels in terms of pulling its weight for. Um, uh, you know, being part of the international community to try and deal with this at source rather than waiting for it to uh, come to to our part of the world. As far as um, risk goes, didn't really feel at risk, although there's, you know, the nagging anxiety that somehow, you know, we don't actually really know everything about this and could bump into somebody, but every building you went into, you're supposed to wash your hands in um, uh, chlorine. Nobody was shaking hands. Oh, People were knocking elbows as as ways of um, uh, as ways of greeting. Um, I did join in with a um, dead body collection team um, and got you know fully kitted up. And have to say how impressed I was with this group of people who were not healthcare workers. They were um, office workers and people like that who put their hand up to come and help. Um, who were very disciplined about their PPE and had been well trained by MSF um, to do this. What's uh, PPE for listeners? So PPE. What is PPE? Uh, personal protective equipment. Mm-hmm. The 
It's absolutely covered so that there is no skin. Goggles, masks. Yes. They look like in a spacesuit, don't they, mm-hmm. from the pictures I've seen? So it looks like a spacesuit. Yes, and how frightening that must be yeah. for um, people living in the sort of circumstances yeah. I described, um, having people like that coming in to pick you up if you're a patient or... An alien. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, it is just extraordinary. It really is in some sense like being on Mars for people in Australia. So, mm. Cords, you go and collect the bodies. What do you do with them then? Yeah, well, the... Um, the the president herself, <coughs> President Sirleaf, um, had ordained that the bodies would be cremated. The, the community was... This isn't a cultural practice, um, uh, but the community was very concerned that even burying the bodies might... There might still be... Yeah, there'd be a viral load in the yeah, soil and in the soil into the and water. That, that would get into the water supply. Yeah. And uh, so the, it, the community actually has worn this cultural shift to um, uh, cremation. I don't actually think from a you know, from what is known at the moment you've got to be a little bit careful about making the claim that actually burying would be okay, but then people say, well then, you know, animals might get to it and then they might do it. So there, there are sort of theoretical possibilities I suppose of uh, uh, increasing the chain of uh, transmission. So a lot of the bodies get cremated, but not all of them. How many people are dying uh, at present, yeah. as we speak? Well, I think the, the number at the moment is about 6,500, um, but that West Africa have died. Um, but um, as I was saying before, I don't think the numbers have got a lot of... You know, They're not accurate. Hmm? They're not accurate. Well, I don't think they can be accurate. Yeah. It's not no, no criticism of no. anybody. It's just that it's so really chaotic no. that uh, to say that there's 6,837 no. um, deaths is... Uh, uh, I mean, one way of describing the, this sort of thing is to say you look at the map and you see a very clear line between Liberia and neighbouring countries as though the epidemic stops mm-hmm. at the border. Of course, it doesn't stop at the border. Mm. People are sick and there is no border. People just wandering, you know, living in that area. Uh, they're in the next country for sure, but it's, it's um, just not recognised. So there's so much that is um, happening underneath what uh, the system can really understand and know that uh, we just don't know what we don't know in that space. Has it changed you at all going there? Has it, has it had some sort of an effect psychologically, practice-wise? On myself? Yeah. Oh, well, it, this is the first time we've been involved with uh, where the dead are actually part of the real chain of transmission of disease. Most people sort of think of dead bodies as infectious mm-hmm. as a matter of definition, which of course is not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you can handle, in ordinary circumstances, you can handle a dead without any real worry, to be perfectly honest, in terms of infectious uh, disease, but that is not the case with uh, Ebola, and that's, uh, that's a big shift um, uh, for us and and for me, yeah. Just how long does how long does the body remain infectious for with Ebola? Well, nobody. That's a great question that nobody knows the answer for, and um, uh, very little data about that. For example, even with HIV, how long does the virus last? Very little data about that. Probably lasts for about six days. It could. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but that doesn't mean that in everybody with HIV on day seven there's no virus. So um, uh, nobody's got a clue about that question in relation to uh, Ebola. Fascinating stuff. Courts, thanks so much for, for coming in. You'll hang around with us. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you will. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. I can see sitting in front of me, Dr. Deep Plot, who's going to tell me about torture. Yeah, look, we've got a, a show for the emos today. It's uh, <laughs> pretty depressing. Um, during the week, there was a, a report released by the US Senate on um, uh, torture by the CIA mm-hmm. uh, involving people who they'd uh, sometimes kidnapped, 
sometimes collected through various means trying to uh, get information about uh, national security. And uh, it got me thinking about the psychological aspects of what goes on that allows these things to happen. Um, hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. What allows these things to happen? Why is it that people who are there to protect us, and of course to protect the values that we um, aspire to and the values we try to live by, are actually prepared to sacrifice those values in order to try to protect them? It's kind of a false logic, isn't it? It yes. doesn't kind of make sense. Yeah. And there was there was a very interesting uh, study that was done in the the 1960s in uh, American University that gives us some indication <laughs> about uh, what might actually happen. And in this study, there were a, a group of students that that were uh, um, recruited and they were split into two and one group were designed to be subjects and the other group were designed to be well in fact they were both subjects but they were subjects in different ways and and what the study and it's been replicated in a variety of ways around the same time but of course now would be seen as being unethical and and what what happened in the study is people were given instructions that were designed to cause pain or suffering mm. to another person. It was electric shock, wasn't it? Yeah, electric yeah. shock. And um, in a way, the instructions were legitimised by an authority figure or that they were told that it was part of an experiment. And uh, in some cases, the person that was then electrocuted was part of the study and they actually weren't getting electrocuted, they were pretending. But, but it was really about what happens to the group dynamics in these situations and how much are we as individuals affected by the morality and the ethics of the group. And just briefly recap, what were the results of those uh, studies? Uh, there were there were a few people who refused to participate mm-hmm. because it just um, clashed so much with their personal ethics. But interestingly, uh, and not that surprisingly, there was a shift in what people were prepared to do that was legitimised by authority and legitimised by what they saw their peers doing. And in fact, that that process happens all around us every day when you see people going on organized shopping tours that's what makes shopping tours so successful that when you go on a shopping tour and other people around you are spending a lot of money statistically you're much more likely to spend more money than you would if you went and visited those same places by by yourself so so there's a there's a shift in the mean behavior there's a group thing that's influenced by the group Mm -hmm. mean and uh, so in this situation with with the CIA, that the, there was a legitimisation from authority figures that uh, you know the the uh, end justifies the means and do what you need to do, and also there was a removal of oversight. How do you so mean? there were no external agencies that were reviewing what was going on that weren't caught up in this group mm-hmm. thinking, and in fact that's. Uh, very important given what uh, what uh, George Brandis has, has uh, proposed and suggested for Australian uh, intelligence agencies to reduce the remove the judicial review mm-hmm. of uh, their incarceration and interrogation of people because it removes an, a very important step in controlling this process. But don't you think it is no matter what industry or what craft or what discipline you're in being ec- being reviewed by an external agency that doesn't have the same, um, what's the word, drives as you do, is so terribly important, no matter what Ab- you do. Absolutely, you know, yes. And, and this is a prime example where you get caught up in the groupthink and this kind of stuff happens, you know. One of the really upsetting things for me about this torture report was to hear the um, head of the CIA not squash this thought that torture produces valuable, reliable outcome. And his formulation was, well, some of these people who were tortured did, down the track, give us useful information. I'm not saying, said the head of the CIA, that this was directly due to torture, but nor can I say that it wasn't. So he has left the door open, Mm. which I think is to the utilitarian value of... Mm. 
the end justifies the means yeah yes. It's an interesting one, this whole... You know, it's been debated for many, many years, the whole the science of torture. Is there such a thing as a technique that can get people to give valuable information? Mm. And there's virtually no evidence. It's really quite fascinating. There's a great review of it, interestingly, in the US version of The Conversation, which is that convers- theconversation.com. It's, you know, it's an academic news service. That's and some of us write for. Yes. <laughs> conflict of interest. Declaration. Um, but they've got a really interesting summary of the whole thing. And they've got a group now in America studying and in fact it's got australian people collaborating people all around the world and they've recently produced like about a 50 page booklet on all of the evidence behind torture and basically there's nothing to support torture most of the evidence about getting information is about creating bonds with the people yeah. um using conversations trying to it, it's it's Office about of food yes help, yeah. it's not about torturing them because the problem is innocent people when tortured lie mm. and so you don't know who's innocent and who's not so you don't know the veracity of information yes because intelligence isn't about getting information it's about the veracity of the information mm. you get and people will say what they need to say to stop getting tortured mm. 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 Um, it is interesting because and yet people still keep doing it because oh, well, organisations still keep doing it because there is no judicial review because it's not uh, or well, there wasn't a, in the um, overseas um, because uh, there's kind of a group think what do you reckon we can do I mean uh, as a society there's lots of stuff we can do so we can talk about it but as an organisation or what do you think we can do to stop this from happening again look I, I think what's very important is getting away from us and them type thinking that it's them that torture people not us or if we do it somehow we're different uh, what's important is to see that it's just a part of human nature it's in all of us in the right situation all of us could be seen as being terrorists or all of us could be seen as being torturers but that's why it's important to build in checks and balances so that we can be reminded early in the process so things don't get to that stage how do you do that by having external review by having um, a dilution of control so that one person doesn't control the whole process and so that you you have um external influences on this group process that the group process can't develop and then get magnified and exacerbated on its own yeah fascinating the the other interesting thing that came up in the cia report was while this was going on there was also still trauma happening in the torturers and that the torturers have got quite traumatised by their experience. Well, that would be an an interesting legal precedent where a torturer claims PTSD from their job. Yes, as a torturer. And that comes to court. What would happen then? Well, I guess they could claim government negligence in not providing adequate... Because it's often those... and supervision. It's often those court cases which then determine policy and legislation, Uh, you know. Um, grotesquely, that's what happens. And, and, and I think we could claim, well, yes, everybody should have the moral values to be able to say no, but that flies in the face of the evidence because that's actually not what happens for a large majority of people. Mm. Of course, people respond on a spectrum, but only a small number of people will say no. Mm. And, and, you know, in terms of ways to stop torture, the best ways, of course, will always be the courts. You know, um, the yeah. people who are victims of torture, suing the CIA, suing the US yeah. government or any other government that does it, um, and uh, um, mm. politicians who knew about it mm. being held to mm. account Absolutely. through international and tribunals, etc., etc., etc. And that goes on, but obviously it's hard. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think another consequence of all of this has been it wasn't just the torture itself, but it affected the whole atmospherics within which the American military was operating and Abu Ghraib, mm. uh, you know, just the way the prison was run and the, those absolutely awful photos, mm. which as far as I'm concerned are more awful than any photos that have ever come from my discipline, you know, just see living people mm. treated that way, is... Um, uh, so there was a, a, a trickle-down effect for how lots of the operation, um, uh, you know, were affected. Do you know what also gets me the linguistics of this as well, where um, I can't remember who said it, one of the politicians was saying, well, it's not torture, it was enhanced techniques. Yeah. So we just don't let people sleep for three days. That's not torture, that's an enhanced technique. Well, it's, it's sanitisation of suffering. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, people will buy that. A lot of people, you know, I'm driving along in my car on the way to work okay it's an enhanced technique it's not actually torture because we feel better it's about the reduction of our anxiety yeah because it's very hard for us because we're the good guys to think that we would allow this to happen in our own society and that's why transparency as Doolittle said is is very important Mm. good on you deepy 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Let's move to some more enjoyable <laughs> topics. We, uh, <laughs> we're all taking a deep breath here at uh, Radiotherapy Central. And we're going to switch into Yuletide mode because uh, EpiPen has got some Christmas cheer. Chris, tell me it's Christmas cheer. Tell yes. me it's cheer. Yeah, I've got some f- few funny things to oh, tell, tell you Tell me about. some funny things about Okay, because I think we do need to lift the, uh, the, mood. the mood in the room. <laughs> really? But, 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 I do, but, I, yeah. <laughs> but I do have to say one little thing, sure. that Christmas and Christmas celebrations have been cancelled in Sierra Leone because of wanting to contain the virus and the infection. Anyway, so Christmas for me, uh, I'll start off by that way, is just I I am one of six children and Christmas was the absolute highlight of the year. And no matter what and no matter where you were on the planet, my mum would fly us back for Christmas Day. So it was, it's a very much a tradition. So you'd always buy a one-way ticket? Yeah, she'd fly us back. Beauty. Can I just do a spoiler alert. I don't know if anyone, there was a TV show this week that um, um, talked about Santa Claus in a, in a way, anyway, in a way that upset a lot of children, let's just say, and I can see your notes Penny, so spoiler alert, don't go upsetting children. I'm not going to upset children. Anyway, no so, so, um, so we, and mum agreed that we had to, at 30 we had to stop having the Christmas stockings. So that was, you know, <laughs> but I have to tell you about, this is a clue about managing uh, children around Christmas and Father Christmas Mm-hmm. So th- we have a pretense that we mustn't lie to children. Mm-hmm. And so... Really? Yes, <laughs> uh, you do. So anyway, so how, when kids ask you, you know, what, 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 how, is Father Christmas really real? And my line is, well, I haven't seen him. So I'm not spoiling it, and I'm oh. not, and I'm not lying. So you're rejecting so the I premise could, of the question. Yeah, yeah, I could keep it going in my kids for quite some time. <laughs> but one of the things I really wanted to say was working in the Alfred in the 80s was Christmas Day was really fun and really special, and for people that are very sick in hospital to be in the bed next door to Father Christmas, who got admitted every year the week before Christmas, was so. Great. I played, well, I played, I was Father Christmas for uh, the ward down at Caulfield Hospital in the, in the late 80s. Lovely. Because, you know, often it was the uh, people who weren't celebrating Christmas, <laughs> Jewish people like Jewish me, people. Yeah. <laughs> who staffed the hospitals. And so, we, you know, we got into the whole thing. Yeah, so one um, sort of late shift when I was nursing, one of the residents and I went up to the PA system where the switchboard was and we took over the PA system, we threw them out and said, come on, time for fun. And it was very cro- close to Christmas Eve. And we had so much fun. They just kept all these jokes and things that we were saying just kept rolling out. So we paged the man to, that owns the sleigh to the main chimney, registration HOHO, could he please remove it from the chimney? <laughs> we, we paged... This is a bit politically incorrect. We paged Monica Musclebound, the physiotherapist, to please come and speak to us in the switchboard. We paged Norma Glutton, the dietitian, to please come and speak to us. And it was just a great time. And Father Christmas was in the bed, so there was this stuffed person and the nurses used to have to um, do urine tests and tests for icicles and tests for too much sugar and well, eggnog. He, he had a history didn't he? He, he had, had a medi- history. He had medical notes. And he came in each year under a different unit yeah. so he came in under the endocrinologists and the cardiologists and there were all these funny clever people that put lots of sort of stories to the type of heart rhythms that he had. There was the jingle bells rhythm and we weren't allowed to treat it and it just was very uplifting so I just felt that that was uh, a special time. Do we still do that nowadays no. in modern hospitals? Can we not get switchboard to take, you know, half an hour out of the room whilst we crack some jokes over the PA? Well, think... we've got to be efficient these days. That's the problem. <laughs> the children still have a big tradition. Yeah. Um, yeah. The fire department yeah. turns up and Santa Claus comes on board and does a big tour of the hospital. And again, it's often a Jewish Santa. In fact, it's <laughs> one of my mates does it quite a bit. And um, and uh, it's just fantastic for the kids. But in the adult hospitals, do we do anything, um, Epi? No, I've, I've looked around. and it's it, back. It, Yeah, Father Christmas is gone. And the fun and just yeah bring him back and even bring out his history and we could read that in the archives i mean i'm sure they would never have destroyed it i, I you know what i remember once about this the because the history came I, I think i wrote in the history a couple of times because i was on an ned in the emergency department and i reckon one of the, the best entries was by night an infectious disease physician because he said you know the sky's coming with a red nose and here are all, all the organisms that causes red noses <laughs> in scandinavia and he'd looked this whole thing up was this 
whole treaty. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was very, very clever. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it back, even if it's just for educational reasons. Absolutely. So, my friends, plans for Christmas chords? Up to anything? Oh, well, we're lucky enough to be down at the beach. So, oh, uh, good Australian uh, Christmas. With, with my family and my 93-year-old mum. Ah. Oh. Muzzle off. That sounds like great fun. What about you, DB? I'll be up in God's own country, northeast Victoria, oh, enjoying the wonderful weather, the mountain air, cycling, eating. Great place to be. Isn't it just uh, magnificent? Uh, I have actually been to your place in northeastern Victoria. What about you, Epi? What, oh, what are you going to be doing? My family's very dysfunctional, so we'll be up at one end fighting, <laughs> now drinking too much. Now that your mother's not paying for the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> drinking, carrying on, kids will go nuts, the dog will bite people. Just And uh, uh, it, look, it's an annual thing. We might not catch up for birthdays, and we live with all the, the fraughtness and carry on, but it's, it's an annual thing. We do it, and Mum... Loves it. Yeah, so now you fly your mum back from wherever she is overseas. <laughs> so she buys one way. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'm going to say that we to you. That's a great What about you? Um, I'm a beach person too. We, my family's big. We love it. My mother's birthday was always on Boxing Day. She's deceased now. And I've got a cousin who was on the 30th and another relative who was around then too. So we always have a big family Christmas day. But then it follows on for the next week. I don't, I, like, I've never been to the Boxing Day test because we always have a big party. To We always had one to celebrate my mum's birthday and we carry mm. on that too and so uh, I love it yeah but we're all down at the beach too one of my aunts has a place and we all turn up there and she's got a swimming pool and it's just such a lovely day so whenever I read you know all those winter stories about Christmas they just don't you know I think of Christmas as you know my favourite Christmas is 35 degrees um, you know running under the sprinkler that sort of stuff what about you Mel? Well uh, Hanukkah's coming up and uh, (laughs) I heard one of um, Melbourne's leading radio people talking about his Christmases on the radio this week and talking Talking about that very thing, he said he'd go to cafes and that sort of stuff. Do you partake well, at all? Well, well, because we don't celebrate uh, Christmas. We um, on Christmas Day, it's like we go out and there's, there ain't that much happening. So um, can I just say, Christmas really has not much to do with religion these days. It's the whole high holy day of the world religion of consumerism. Yeah, Festivus, yeah. Festivus. Exactly. So you can celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. We, no, we, we we celebrate lots of stuff. So um, all of this is by way of saying we hope you have a great Christmas. I think. Do we have one more show? left for radiotherapy yeah i think we may do but this is our last show that is that is the a team before uh, before christmas so we wish you a great christmas and we will be coming back at you uh next year february february stand by for the scientists from einstein and go go oh they're giving me the thumbs up hope you have a great yuletide season and be safe Show me a man that's never been jealous or a woman oh triple r <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.